try to teach from my iPad again because that didn't go very well. But I think I figured out a way to do this um, where it maybe won't make quite such a mess. So I'm going to try this. If it doesn't work this time, then I can promise you I won't ever use it again. Uh, I, I like technology when it works and I hate it when it doesn't. So, Well, as, as I always say every time I have this, this privilege of standing before you, it is an honoring and a humbling thing to stand before the people of God and open the Word of God. And it's, it's, a, it's a task that I do not take lightly, and um, it's a task that is still a bit overwhelming to me. So uh, I'll appreciate your prayer and your patience as we work through our text this morning. Um, just by way of introduction, uh, I'd like to just take a second and recap where we've come so far in Daniel chapter 3. Um, this, this chapter has been very eventful, uh, to say the least. Lots of things going on, lots of stuff for us to learn from this. We will remember that so far in Daniel 3, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar construct a golden image that was undoubtedly an image based on the interpretation that God had given Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar's previous dream in chapter 2. The image in that dream represented Nebuchadnezzar and then the four kingdoms that would come after Babylon had fallen. It included, of course, a head of gold, followed by lower parts of silver, bronze, iron, and finally a mixture of iron and clay representing a divided kingdom. This image, uh, representing multiple human kingdoms, was then toppled and destroyed by a kingdom set up by the God of heaven that will never, ever, ever be destroyed. This kingdom was depicted by a stone, of course, cut from no human hands, and that stone would have been Christ. And then the mountain that that stone expanded into would represent the ever-expanding body of Christ. Upon hearing this interpretation, after an unspecified length of time, we see that Nebuchadnezzar then endeavored to build a towering monument to his own greatness. This great statue was intentionally altered from the one in his dream so that it was overlaid entirely in gold and that was to assert his claim to a never-ending rule. He issued uh, a command then that everyone in his kingdom was to worship the statue that he had set up and we remember the repetition again and again the statue that Nebuchadnezzar set up that Nebuchadnezzar set up. Scripture was making it absolutely clear uh, un unmistakable that this was an effort of Nebuchadnezzar. This was not in any way uh, ordained of God. And of course, we know it would be a sin to worship uh, an image. It would be a sin to worship an idol. And, and even to create an image to represent God would be a sin because God has already created an image of himself to represent himself, and that is humanity. It's mankind, and he's very protective of that image. He wants that image to represent him and never be the object of worship, but always pointing us to the true object of worship, which is God himself. So when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were brought before Nebuchadnezzar for their disobedience and their refusal to bow before the image, they told Nebuchadnezzar quite simply that they would not commit such a sin before their God. And when they were given the ultimatum of the fiery furnace, they maintained that the God of heaven would deliver them from that fire. And even if he chose to allow them to perish in the furnace, they still would not defile themselves with the worship of false gods. So this kind of sets us up and brings us to where we are now in chapter 3 of Daniel. And we'll begin our reading uh, this week 
in verse 19. This is a fairly lengthy passage, but if you will uh, just give me a little bit of grace with this, I'd like to read the whole thing before we go back and start working through the text. Um, I think it's important that we really get in our minds the full picture of what this passage is telling us today. So beginning in Daniel 3, uh, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to God in prayer this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful, Lord, for an opportunity to study the truths that you have set forth in Scripture. God, I ask for clarity of thought this morning that we may all be in one accord as we consider the teachings of Scripture and as we seek to apply them to our hearts and lives. God, protect me from error. Protect us, Lord, from any misunderstanding of what you have so clearly communicated to your people. God, I ask that I may decrease as you increase, as your word goes forth. We pray this in your son Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we're going to work through this text um, in three sections, and then we'll offer two brief points of application once we get to the end. Today's three parts are going to be titled, Nebuchadnezzar's Wrath Upon God's People, Nebuchadnezzar's Realization of God's Power, and finally, Nebuchadnezzar's Reset. To God's purpose. So concerning Nebuchadnezzar's wrath upon God's people, as we begin looking at this passage, it's important, I think, for us to consider the degree of wrath that Nebuchadnezzar had for the people of God. 
Verse 19 tells us that he was so filled with anger. In the ESV, it says, it actually uses the word fury, that the physical appearance of his face was actually changed. Now, in normal circumstances, the emotion of anger might be felt in the form of frustration, angst, irritation, maybe toward a person or toward a situation. And then maybe even in some heightened examples, anger could be detected in something that someone says or does. But in our text today, we see that without any verbalized expression, it was obvious from the appearance of his face that Nebuchadnezzar was set into a blind rage because of the disobedience of the three Hebrew youths. Based on his anger then, he commanded that the furnace be heated to seven times its normal temperature. So presuming that wood was the fuel for the fire, and knowing that wood burns at temperatures varying from 650 degrees to 1700 degrees Fahrenheit, even someone with my limited mathematical abilities can see that that was an exceedingly hot fire. We don't need to bother doing the math to come to that conclusion. And additionally, some scholars have have seen significance in this number seven as the number of completion throughout Scripture. Many times when Scripture seeks to talk of something being completely or ultimately fulfilled, the, the number seven is employed. This also, I think, is maybe unnecessary speculation. The larger point that we want to take into account here is that the furnace was heated absolutely to the max because Nebuchadnezzar was completely enraged that his order would have been denied. And he was determined to make an example of anyone who would defy what he viewed as his supreme authority. So the overheating of the furnace was obviously overkill, but he wanted an inferno that was hot enough to match his fury. Now to us, um, living in our our land of of sort of freedom and free religion, free expression of religion, and enjoying the the blessings that we have in this country, it might seem irrational for us to to look at uh, someone having this level of anger because someone refused to worship the God that you set up. And I think to understand this, we need to look at three points that help us understand uh, why it was that, that Nebuchadnezzar might have been so incredibly angry over this denial of his order. Uh, the first point would be to take a look at, just generally speaking, pagan ideas of divinity, of deity. Um, they, they had this, this notion, this idea that deity was reflected in a continuity between the divine, the gods, and the kings on earth. From a sermon series on the book of Daniel, Joseph Boot of the Ezra Institute in Canada speaks at length about the pagan understanding of deity. He emphasizes that there was often a belief in the ancient world that the human rulers, the kings of the day, possessed in some way a direct continuity of power between the earthly realm and the divine realm. And we see this in in examples such as the Tower of Babel, that somehow the human realm might extend into the heavens. We see this in the worship of the pharaohs in Egypt, as well as the emperor cults of the Roman Empire. And this attitude was also reflected in this chapter concerning Nebuchadnezzar. If we think back to verse 15 of this chapter, we remember that when it was brought to Nebuchadnezzar's attention by some of his advisors that there were these three Hebrews, whom he had appointed, by the way, that were not on board with the latest religious mandate, we will recall his reaction. Let's look back to that really quickly just to establish this understanding that Nebuchadnezzar really viewed himself on the level of deity. Uh, Verse 15 of Daniel 3 reads, Now if you are ready, he's speaking to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When you are ready, 
When you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Now hear this part. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So he's setting himself up as an authority and a power that he believes cannot be overcome by any deity. Well, in in truth and in reality, he's about to find out who this God is who can deliver the three Hebrew children out of his hand. Apparently, he had never read Psalm 37, in which we read, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And as we'll see today, these three Hebrew children are beginning to experience directly this deliverance that God promises. Notice also as we consider this that Nebuchadnezzar sees the God of Israel as merely another of the gods that must be appeased. He also sees himself as having a level of authority and power that would be on par with that of any god. So he believed in his ability to bring about his will, and he believed that his ability was equal to that of the God of Israel. The second thing to point out as we, as we sort of wrestle with why it was that Nebuchadnezzar was so mad is that in his mind, he had already paid homage to the Israelite God by promoting Daniel and these three Hebrew youths. Back in chapter 2, we'll recall that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when he had his dream explained to him, he acknowledged the God of Daniel as being unique and special. Um, This is important to review, so let's turn back to Daniel 2. Look at verse 46. Look at King Nebuchadnezzar's reaction. Just by way of reminder, King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So Nebuchadnezzar was thinking that this degree of obeisance to their God, all these favors shown to Daniel and this promotion of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should more than have sufficed and satisfied this deity. Again, in the polytheistic world, it was a matter of token recognition of various gods to stay on their good side, to avoid the wrath of this God, to avoid the wrath of the sun God, to avoid the wrath of the God of the flood, to avoid the wrath of the God of the wind. Okay, All of these, these different little gods that they set up, um, maybe obeisance to a fertility goddess to, to ensure uh, reproduction. Um, the, the God of the harvest, right? All these different gods that they would have acknowledged, they were simply putting Yahweh in this list, in this pantheon of other gods to be honored, to be uh, given a token demonstration of respect to. Well, the third point that we'll look to that, that demonstrates um, why Nebuchadnezzar was so angry is that he saw their, their defiance of him as an act of ingratitude as an extreme act of being ungrateful, ungracious for for what Nebuchadnezzar considered his great blessing. 
Since Nebuchadnezzar had shown respect to their God, and he had even granted Daniel's request that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be promoted, he certainly saw their, their disobedience as, as a terrible slap in his face. This was something that could not go overlooked or unpunished. His reputation and his authority would be compromised by this defiant act, and he had to respond in some way. So continuing in the passage, we see in verse 20 that Nebuchadnezzar had ordered some of his mighty men to bind the Hebrew children. We don't want to read too much into this detail of Scripture, but I think it is safe to say that he fully intended to make the strongest example possible of these Israelites who would not yield to his command. He wanted to produce a show of force that would deter any other potential resistance to his authority. We also see here that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were still in the clothes. Presumably, these would be the clothes that they had worn in their official capacity in the province of Babylon. This fact will be significant as we work through the passage. So let's get this picture just just briefly here, and I'm going to paint a picture for us that maybe fills in a little bit more detail than is in Scripture, so if you'll offer me just a little bit of of leeway with this. This is the, the way we can envision this scenario going down. The mighty men of Babylon who have been tasked with heating the furnace as hot as possible. And they were given the task of throwing the Hebrew children into the flames. They bind them, and they begin moving them toward the fire. They shove them close to the fire, expecting them to fall in. But they're not affected by the flame. Okay, imagine that. We're getting closer and closer and closer. But they're, they're, the people pushing are feeling the flame. The Israelites are shrugging as though, hey, this is kind of, this is kind of cool. Uh, literally, it's not, it's not burning. It doesn't hurt us, right? They get closer. They push them farther. They push them farther. They know, the mighty men know, if they fail to accomplish the task that they've been given by Nebuchadnezzar, they will certainly be killed. So they push a little closer, a little more toward the fire. They won't burn. A little more, they won't die. Finally, they get close enough to force them into the flames. But in the process, they are actually killed by the severe overheated furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, on the other hand, are absolutely unfazed. Okay? So with this visual in our mind, let's turn our attention to verse 24 and continue with this text. It says in verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over their bodies, uh, over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. So for the second part of this text, we'll, we'll title this Nebuchadnezzar's realization of God's power. The first thing we see is that Nebuchadnezzar was completely astonished. Okay, uh, we, we don't see things today that surprise us much. Okay, even, even something that might be like as, as a child, something that might have surprised you um, or startled you when you see someone pull a coin from behind someone's ear. Okay, a simple magic trick maybe. 
Um, as, a, as a five-year-old, that's just the most awesome thing you've ever seen. You can't imagine how that could be done. As, as you get older, though, you start to recognize sleight of hand. You recognize how these things are done. So uh, as, as adults, we're not really astonished by much of anything. Now, we might say we're astonished at a beautiful sunset. We might say that we're astonished by uh, a turn of events. But, but uh, imagine, if you will, that you have placed human beings in a flame heated to thousands of degrees, and they simply do not catch on fire. We're reminded of, of the burning bush in Moses. He was astonished at the fact that this bush was burning, but it did not burn up. Well, in, in the case of, of the three Hebrew children, they didn't burn up either. Um, they, didn't, uh, they didn't get burned. Their hair didn't get singed. Their clothes, which were the, the, the regalia of, of the Babylonian leaders, should have been the first thing to catch fire before they ever touched the flame. The, the severe, intense heat should have engulfed them, their clothes, in flames. And we know that Nebuchadnezzar was, uh, was expecting them, at least for a short time, to be writhing in pain. But what he says is, I see, I see these men. They're unhurt. Uh, I'm reminded of the line of the Sicilian villain in the old movie The Princess Bride, as, he was, as his plans are foiled again and again and again. And he continues to say, what? Inconceivable, right? Now, that's, uh, that's the best uh, lisp I can do for you this morning. But, but it's, that, it's that idea that, that everything that I have endeavored to do is being absolutely redirected by something far greater than me. So his realization here is that something's going down, and I don't know what it is. It's absolute, utter astonishment. So he calls his counselors, and he commands them to verify what he already knew. The three men who were bound were now four men, unbound, walking around. Again, he was expecting to see pain. He was expecting to hear cries of agony. And he was absolutely um, astonished at the fact that none of that happened. Now, about this fourth man in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar recognized something in him that indicated that this was a divine person. The Bible does not offer any concrete information about how Nebuchadnezzar came to know this, other than he came to this conclusion by saying that his appearance was like a son of the gods. And there is widespread belief, if not consensus, that this fourth man in the fire is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. The translators of the King James and the New King James even render this phrase as like the son of God. And while both interpretations, like a son of the gods and the son of God, are linguistically possible, there's really no reason for us to assume that Nebuchadnezzar would have any perception of what it means for Christ to be God's only begotten son. Um, for us to assume that would be to re be reading our fully formed doctrine of the Trinity back into a pagan context. This is not to say that the fourth person in the fire was not Jesus. Um, I'm probably more willing than most to see Old Testament Christophanies. I'm, I'm happy to see Christ in the Old Testament, and, and I, I recognize that probably more than a lot of people would, would be willing to. Um, but I just don't think we have to see this as an example of an Old Testament appearance of Jesus to appreciate the significance. The point is Nebuchadnezzar saw that this was something divine. It was, it was a divine being, and the appearance of that being, be it an angel, be it the second person of the Trinity, made it clear to Nebuchadnezzar that he, his plans were being redirected by the one true God, and that was being testified to him very clearly.
So when he called the men to come out of the fire, the satraps, the, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, um, all the king's horses and all the king's men, if you will, were called to see what, what was happening, and they could not believe what they saw. The three Hebrew youths, again, not burned, hair not singed, clothes unharmed. They didn't even smell like smoke. Friday night, I cooked hamburgers and sausage on the grill. And after standing over the grill for about 30 minutes, I completely smelled like smoke. My, my hair, what little bit I have left, smelled like smoke. Uh, my clothes smelled like smoke. Um, I think uh, Allison and James stood by the grill for a few minutes. They probably smelled like smoke by, by the time they, they got home. Um, so th- this idea that, that these three Hebrew children could be placed into a fire without being affected by the fire was truly a miraculous event. And it's one that created a realization within the mind of Nebuchadnezzar that, hey, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Something, something is up here. So upon this realization, he essentially had his entire world reset to God's purpose. And that'll be our title of this final section as we look at verse 28. Verse 28 of chapter 3 reads, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So based on Nebuchadnezzar's realization of God's power, he knew that praise was due to the God of Israel. Look back again to verse 28, as he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He realized that this type of deliverance could only be from their God who had sent his angel, either Jesus Christ or an angel of the Lord. He saw that they feared their God more than him, and he marveled at their willingness to endure bodily suffering and death rather than to disobey the one true God. This was in part what compelled him to change his decree. Likewise, the manner in which first century Christians were willing to suffer and die rather than to deny the material facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ poured fuel onto the fire that was igniting Palestine and the surrounding areas with the gospel. There's really nothing like endurance and suffering well on the part of believers to point the loss to God. Even today, Let me ask this question today. How many times are lost, the lost people, exposed to the greatness of our God through the manner in which saved people suffer? Consider that. Consider that briefly. When a Christian family experiences tragedy and they glorify their God through that loss, refusing to mourn as those who do not have hope. When a Christian businessman loses his business and his financial security while never losing sight of his Savior. Or maybe when a godly Christian woman loses her husband late in life, yet she still holds to the joy of her salvation. All of these examples of the normal trials and tribulation of this world, in addition to legitimate persecution that we experience from the ungodly, all point people to our God when we suffer well. Let's see suffering as an opportunity rather than a burden. 
It is a burden. We never deny that. But God bears us through that, just as he did the children in, in the fiery furnace. And he points people to himself through those trials. We see in verse 29 that Nebuchadnezzar was now ready to issue a new decree. His purpose had been reset to the purposes of God. However, even in so doing, we need to recognize that Nebuchadnezzar was not converted. He was only continuing to uphold the God of Israel along with the pantheons of other gods that he honored. He certainly made a strict decree. If you'll notice, he, he promised that anyone who spoke ill of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be torn limb from limb and their homes would be reduced to rubble. That is a strong decree. That is certainly a, a hefty price to pay for blaspheming God. However, in all of this rubble, he was uh, this, uh, this bluster, this, this uh, blundering on, he was merely acknowledging that the God of Israel had done something unique. He failed to recognize the exclusivity of the one true God. Remember, let us never forget, our God does not share his glory with any other. Even in this reset to God's purposes, Nebuchadnezzar was just trying to avoid bringing down any undue wrath from the God of Israel, just as he wanted to avoid the wrath of all the other gods that he paid homage to and all the other gods that were worshipped in Babylon. In any event, the result of this miraculous deliverance of the three Hebrew children was a reversal of Nebuchadnezzar's fire decree, and it was indicative of an even greater reversal of his original command of the universal worship of the God he set up. In the final verse of this passage, we see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, by the way, were still clothed in the garments they wore as representatives of the Babylonian authority. They could not be affected by fire. They were once again promoted within the providence of Babylon. It's as if God kept them through the flame, took them out, set them right back in the place of authority within Babylon that he had granted them before. It's amazing. The one who thought he gave them that authority could not take it away from them, and they were returned to the place of honor. Imagine that for just a second. All authority comes from God. All authority on heaven and earth. And it is only God who can take away that authority. In this case, even a really, really hot fire could not burn off the authority that God had placed within Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So having worked through this passage today uh, that we've been assigned, let's uh, examine two takeaways um, as we consider this portion of Scripture. First, it's important for us to note that God is not interested in being one of the things we serve. Let me say that again. God has no interest in being merely one of the things that we serve. He wants to be the absolute singular object of our worship. He will not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Also, in speaking of his refining and preserving a remnant within the nation of Israel, God says again in Isaiah 48, 11, For my own sake, and he repeats, For my own sake I do it, that is, save Israel. I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is about God. God is about his own glory. And as his redeemed creatures, we are to be about his glory as well. While we might struggle, or sorry, while we might not struggle in our culture with the type of rank idolatry that we see in the Babylonian sense, I do think that far too often we include our worship of God as simply one of the many things that we throw into the mix of our daily lives. When we only spend time in prayer if we don't have other things to do, 
or men, when we only gather our wife and children together for home worship when we aren't too tired from the rest of the activities of the day. Or maybe if the last thing we consider when planning our social calendar is how our busyness might affect our participation in the weekly life of the gathered church for worship and community groups. When we find ourselves in these situations, we are essentially telling God that we think He needs to share His glory with something else. And that's a dreadful mistake to make. Even in the way church activities are conducted sometimes, um, and the way they're structured, there is the potential for robbing of God of what He demands in worship. In way too many churches today, the glory of God is an afterthought. Far too many in the body of Christ adopt a man-centered approach to worship in church life. We hear questions like, when considering a church, what kind of worship do I like? What kind of programs do I want for my kids? What kind of outreach and service is there for my community? Those questions tend to dominate the conversation. Understand, there's nothing wrong with giving consideration to worship music. I'm glad Ryan does that every week. Uh, There's nothing at all wrong with considering the type of children's education that we offer. Uh, We see Evan concerned with that a lot. Okay? And, and there's certainly nothing wrong with, with reaching out to our community with the gospel. But when we begin with these concerns, when we begin with a man-centered approach, we really get the cart before the horse. How about these questions instead? What kind of worship music would bring God the most glory? Or maybe what kind of kids' education program would adequately teach the highest possible view of God? Maybe, what kind of community outreach would be most honoring to God? Is this not a more appropriate posture to be taking if we're truly seeking the glory of God in all things? Understand, church, I'm not trying to puff us up by critiquing other churches. Please see this as a, as a warning to us. Let us always be God-centered and never man-centered. Just as Nebuchadnezzar had the God of Israel as one of the things he served— Let us not do the same thing with our God. Let him be the fundamental object of our worship, of our time, of our emphasis in our lives. Second takeaway, we will never, ever, ever bring the gospel to the world until we are willing to be seen as different from the world. This does not mean that we should take a contrarian view of life with our neighbors, but we should honestly ask ourselves the following question. Men and women, Do your colleagues at work or the other parents at the ballpark see that you are somehow different? Kids, do your friends find you to be strange because the things you say and do set you apart? I'm not suggesting that we go out of our way to to make people notice us as being different. But if we are truly seeking the glory of God, if we truly have God as our first priority in our life, we will look different than the stuff that's going on around us. There's, there's no way to avoid that. The last thing we want people to do is to praise us for our good works. Um, but I do think it's important for us to recognize that in Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, God made it apparent very, very quickly that they were not Babylonians. And they never lost their identity, which was found in the one true God, rather than being a Babylonian. It did not take long for their captors to see that there was something different about these young men. From their refusal to defile themselves by eating the king's meat and drink, to Daniel's ability to interpret dreams by the power of God, to the refusal of the three Hebrew children to bow down to a man-made idol, it was clear 
that these four men were very, very different. They weren't just acting different, but they were different. God had set them apart for his purposes. If we are truly followers of God today, and we have been set apart by the atoning work of Christ as born-again children of God, our sanctification should be obvious to those around us. Our individual lives should look different. Our families should look different. Our churches, of course, should look different. The Apostle Paul uses the illustration in 2 Corinthians of a smell or a fragrance to describe an authentic Christian life. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. And in conclusion, that's my exhortation to you today. Let us all be mindful of the need to speak Christ into a dark and decaying world. We are to be salt and light, according to Matthew 5. Salt is a preserving agent, whereas light is an illuminating force for the truth. How can salt preserve anything if it's never applied? And how can light illuminate anything if it's always covered? So my charge to you today is like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. Be bold, be confident, but most of all, be committed to the glory of God in all things. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful once again for this time of worship. It's our opportunity to set you high, to hold our highest view of you and your word as we study the scriptures to see what you have to say to us. Lord, I pray that you will bring this passage to bear on each of our lives, that we may live for you, that we may serve you, that everything we do may be for your glory, God, that you would use us for your purposes. Give us a willingness and a joy as we submit our lives to you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.